This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show neurophysiologist and founder of The Way Back, Kate Pate. So we discuss a host of topics from childhood trauma and eating disorders through to TBI, sleep, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating you leave truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kate Pate. Enjoy. Well, Kate, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast and thank you for coming on because I know that you are something that is going to resonate a lot of people listening. You are chronically sleep deprived this morning, so I appreciate you (laughs) fighting through your your fatigue. Yes, absolutely. I am so grateful to be here. Thanks for having me on. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? (laughs) I am in Bozeman, Montana this morning and it is just after 7 a.m. and it is still pitch black out. And I'm, uh, we're, we're approaching that time of year where everybody has to start to adjust to the, you know, the, the chronic darkness and lack of vitamin D. So we're, uh, we're getting prepared for that here. Absolutely. I had uh, Professor Russell Foster on, who's a neuroscientist from Oxford University, and he was part of the team. I think he really pioneered this, this thought process but that found the photoreceptors in in the retina. So that actually mm. allows our circadian rhythm to acknowledge day and night. And he was ridiculed by his community until he proved it, um, which is a very familiar concept to me. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting because having done that interview during this summer, as we start getting into the winter season, I can feel that I'm, I've have woken up, but my body's not ready to wake up until the sun comes up. So it's amazing that connection we have with it. Yeah, I, it's the exact same for me too. And in the summer, I feel like I have so much energy and I'm always ready to go. And this time of year, I'm just, it's a little bit more, you know, we're, we're a little bit more lethargic, which I think is, is fine. You know, we shouldn't be, I don't, I mean, we can always maximize the tools that we have at our disposal to optimize performance in any situation. And I think that's great that we've figured out how to do that. And I'm also kind of a, a one of those people that really likes to just let my body do what it needs to do with the seasons. And there's a time and a place where there's more energy and, you know, I'm ready to go. And there are other times when I'm a little bit more tired and I give myself the the space to kind of just be with that. That's, you know, seems to work best for me. Absolutely. I'm the same. I don't use, you know, any sort of kind of fitness tracker or anything. If my body, you know, feels a certain way, I'll, I'll work harder or I'll work less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. I have uh, uh, very strong opinions about wearables, and I think that they're an incredible tool. And I do really appreciate where technology is and where it will probably continue to go. And it's just one of those things that for me, I, I really like to just pay attention to myself and not have gadgets and things like that I'm plugged into constantly telling me what I should or shouldn't do or how I'm actually doing. But I, I think that that's because I've just paid attention to my body. And I do understand that there are people maybe who don't have 
that kind of a connection and don't know. And I think they can be good tools to help educate people and get them back into feeling into that and being more aware of it. But, um, and then maybe to a point where they don't need them. But for me, it's like, it's just not, it's not how I'm wired. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've watched the the Fitbit. I mean, with my anyone from my wife to many, many people in my fire station, my last apartment, one of the good things they did, they gave out the wellness department gave out Fitbits if you signed up. Um, and I would watch people that used to be on the phone in a chair, you know, walking around the station or, you know, so every, those are the fantastic. But then Russell, for example, talks about the kind of mythology behind the sleep apps and the sleep wearables. And he's like, you know, even, even the, is it the EEGs? Have we got that right? Even those actually, he says are, you know, really junk science when you actually look at them. So to think that a watch or a ring could tell you how well you slept. And I've always questioned that too. So, and then you become obsessive. Like, oh, I didn't get enough REM sleep. Well, you just ignore that stuff. Move your, your, your wearable will allow you to track your movement, which is phenomenal, but don't get to the point where you're obsessing over that data, which is then affecting your life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can definitely get into a pattern of like micromanaging everything you do, even with, you know, certain educational podcasts out there that are incredible where people break down the science of human performance or uh, health and aging and things like that, where, you know, really complex topics, they break it down and it's like for optimal, whatever, you know, whatever it is that you want, um, optimal X you need to do exactly this. And and people start getting into this habit of, um, you know, this. I mean, we're curious, right? So we want to consume information. We want to improve performance, live a long, healthy life. But it gets to the point where we start micromanaging our entire life and we become obsessive over, well, I didn't do it right today, right? You know, and it's. It, it, I think sometimes all of this information and knowledge can hinder people rather than kind of free them up to just live, you know, and be more in touch with just kind of what comes naturally. But um, yeah, it's it's sort of a double-edged sword, this this information age that we're in right now. Absolutely. Well, we use the term triage when we have a mass casualty incident, and that's basically prioritizing the person that's you know most important, the one that's near death but isn't dead that you could possibly save. And that's what I feel with all this information is, you know, you're, you're looking into these biohacks, but just take a step back. I mean, are you eating whole foods that are clean, you know, not covered in chemicals and hormones? And, you know, that's a good step. You know, you, are you exercising outside? Are you seeing daylight? I mean, there's fundamental things. If you've got all those on point, then maybe start monitoring your blood glucose or whatever it is that you, that you think is going to, you know, give you that extra 1%. I think most people are going to these shiny objects and forgetting the fundamentals. One big thing for me that I fail miserably at is mobility. I know if I work on that, my strength and my endurance will improve. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I'm glad you said that. That's a, a lot of what I do in the coaching space, which we can get to um, in a little bit, but that's the first thing that I do with, with the folks that I work with is the basics, like do these things with discipline every day, be, be consistent with the small things because there isn't a sil silver bullet out there. That's going to fix all of what you're experiencing. If you're not doing this stuff, you know, in addition. So that is absolutely the foundation, but you know, we're, we're wired for wanting a, wanting the easy, easy path and, and a quick fix. And unfortunately that's not, you know, it takes a lot of work. Um, to do it right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I saw, I mean, I haven't jumped into it, but I see a few people posting. I don't even know the background story of this, to be honest, but something about an article saying, hey, can we just forget about all the craziness of, of COVID um, and let's move on? And a lot of the wellness people are being like, no, <laughs> you guys were <laughs> fucking crazy. What, you know, yeah. we need to talk about this. And my thing is not to someone say that I'm right. 
or I'm wrong, but more so we missed the entire underlying health wellness conversation and had such an amazing opportunity with a captive audience to really address that. So to me, this next conversation needs to be, you know, how to create resilient human beings for the next whatever the microorganism is and, you know, reverse all these things that are killing people regardless of a virus. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, then getting onto your timeline as well. I love these, these, you know, rabbit holes. We've been recording <laughs> 10 minutes, already gone some crazy places. Um, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in a little surf town called Sebastian, Florida, um, on the Atlantic coast. And we, we lived in a town called Bureau Beach, but was actually born in Sebastian, but they're both little surf towns and great places to grow up uh, in the 80s and in early 90s and um, had three older brothers and my parents, uh, my mom was a nurse. My dad was in construction and home building. And uh, my mom kind of took time off here and there growing up to be, you know, stay at home mom. And she would sometimes go back to work for short periods of time and just kind of felt it out when we were young. And my dad always worked. He was always um, kind of hustling and the primary breadwinner. And my brothers and I were all super close. My oldest brother uh, is my half brother, Rob. And that's a whole, um, my, my dad was super young when he met Rob's mom. And, you know, when they were growing up, there's, they were Catholic. And, you know, if you and your partner get pregnant, you get married. That's the good Catholic thing to do. And that's what my dad did. And unfortunately it wasn't the best scenario. They were like 20 years old or 21 and some, some issues there, but, um, ended up separating. And then my dad met my mom and had my other two brothers and my, and myself. So my half brother, Rob is 13 years older than me. He was much older than the other brothers and I, but we were all still, despite the age gap, we were all still super close and super tight knit growing up. Um, and we moved a lot actually, because my dad, he was, he, my dad served in the military, but he was out before he even met my mom. He, he just, he was young when he went in and, um, he, we moved a lot because of, he was in construction and home building. And so he would get sent kind of all over the state or, you know, even within the same city to a different part of town and, uh, for work and, and we would move, you know, my family would move to a different part of town. We'd change schools again. So, you know, we grew up, I think my brothers and I are also close because every time we moved, it was, you know, we had to make new friends, but we all had each other. So we were able to lean on each other quite a bit. Um, my, my oldest brother, when I was five, he was 18. So it, there were some issues with him growing up. He was, um, a bit of a, a tough kid, little bit of a troublemaker, um, you know, for a lot of reasons. He had a lot of, a lot of pain and just dealing with a lot. He was a high energy kid as well. And and my parents were busy with the three other children and um, work. And I I think that he just didn't get really what he needed to to thrive. And um, they ended up having to do some tough love with him, which was basically get a job or we're kicking you out. And um, he didn't get a job and they, they had a, they had his stuff on the front porch when he came home that day and they were like, you know, you got to go. So that was sort of his path to, he ended up staying with his girlfriend for a little while, but he ended up joining the Navy. And that was kind of what got him on the the straight and narrow, um, which was really good for him. And he did, he served for four years and this was kind of like Gulf war time. So uh, he was, 
he was out there, um, f- you know, on a, on a ship for four years, kind of doing his thing and then got out and, you know, he's been living in the Pacific Northwest since then, um, kind of, you know, has a family and is, um, doing his thing out there. But the other brothers and I continued to stay close every time we moved. And I went to like, for example, I went to five elementary schools. So one every single year. And, uh, you know, that, that was great when you're super young because kids are open and welcoming and the new kid is like welcomed in um, uh, an excited way where you show up and people want to get to know you and be your friend. But I found that that was <laughs> started to change as I got older and people really didn't care. And you're like the weird kid if you, you know, you're new and everybody already has their friend group. And so when it started happening in high school and we, we moved high schools, that was a totally different challenge for me. Um, it was really hard. I transferred high schools halfway through my freshman year and thank God for sports because I played basketball and ran track and had teammates, um, that I could bond with. But if I didn't have sports, I honestly don't know what I would have done. I was, it was in a big high school in Austin, Texas, and it was very clicky, very, uh, could have been invisible for the entire time I was there and actively worked for that not to be the case. But I mean, I started, I remember very clearly kind of hating some of the kids when I was at school, just seeing how they just didn't care about other human beings and they were so self-absorbed and superficial. And, and I started to like feel myself getting like angry and like feeling just like, like hate towards them for that. And I hate, I didn't like that, that was coming out of me. I was like, this isn't going to help me make friends. This isn't, I don't like feeling this way. I've got to change my thinking. So I actually ended up uh, playing a little (laughs) mind game on myself. And I started looking at all these kids as like babies, like little, little kids and thinking about, okay, they might be an asshole today, but they were, they weren't always this way. And they were really probably cute and sweet and their parents loved them. And, you know, I just, I had to like think about them in a different way. And then I started to like soften around all of that, which was really interesting. Um, and I started to become more compassionate towards these people. And I was like, well, clearly they're this way because they're trying really hard to, you know, be liked. And, you know, I understand that. That's, I think, what we all want. And that helped me. I think that little mind game that I played, actually, it seems insignificant, but that really, I, I reach back to that time quite a bit when I'm struggling with people. And I think back to how we're all so much more alike than different. And we all end up being a product of our genetics, our environment, and and we should have compassion for each other rather than look for the reasons to dislike somebody. So that was really helpful um, for me and ended up having a really good time, you know, the rest of my time in high school playing sports and stuff. But um, my brothers ended up leaving for college at the same time because the older of the two that were still in the house um, he went to community college for a little while and so he was still living at home but then when the other brother that was closer in age to me graduated high school the year i the year before i did the two of them ended up going off to college in a different town in texas at the same time and that was um i was excited for them but i didn't realize how much that was going to impact me 
So my entire senior year, it was the summer before my senior year and my two brothers left. And I knew that they were my rock, but I didn't realize how much I relied on them as like my people, you know, your parents are there and I loved my parents and I figured I would, I would be fine because I'm a, you know, 17 year old strong person and mature and I have my parents still, but it actually was really hard for me when they left for college and I'm left alone, you know, at, at my house with no brothers and my parents were going through some weird, you know, challenging things in their relationship and were checked out, totally not present at all. And and when they were, it was like fighting, you know, and aggression and anger and and unhappiness and depression and all of those things. So I was in a house without my people, my support, my um my my brothers and then in this environment that just felt toxic and like chaotic and unpredictable and it didn't at the time I didn't realize what was happening, but that set set me on a path of being like feeling really out of control and really um, like there was so much grief and around that loss. It felt like I lost them. It was so, it's so strange to talk about now because, you know, they're, they're still here. They're still in my life, but man, it was, it was impactful and it set me on a trajectory to be, to, to harden. It was like something about that made me need to put some armor on, I guess. And pretend I was fine when I wasn't. And I didn't really understand what was going on. So it made it even harder. I didn't know what to talk about. Um, but that that started a path for me that was that led to, um, I had a lot of other challenging things going on. Um, and the way, you know, the way that we were raised, I love my parents to death and they are the most, you know, they're the most incredible people on the planet. And they come from really, really difficult backgrounds, trauma and abuse. And uh, they come from a a time and a place where you don't deal with that. You don't talk about it. You pretend like everything's fine. And they didn't deal with it. Um, And although they did their best to do a better job raising my brothers and I, and there was a lot of love in the house, they shared their traumas with us. And in the ways that they raised us and the ways that they maybe weren't available or expressed anger. Um, And all of that is like the backdrop. And then this event happens where I lose my brothers and I'm on my own. And it felt like I had no stable ground. It was really weird. And I'm I'm picking colleges at the time where I want to go. And I'm like realizing that I want to get the hell away from how I'm feeling. But to me that translated to, I need to run away. I need to get as far away from this place and this environment as possible. And I didn't realize that I was going to be taking that feeling with me, you know, because it was coming from inside me. It was just like, um, I just wanted to get away from it. So I went away to school in Virginia, which was not the right school. It wasn't the right fit. Uh, I went to the University of Virginia. It's a great school, beautiful place, wonderful people, but like wasn't the right thing for me at the time. Um, I don't honestly don't know what I would have needed, but uh yeah, that then set me up to feel more unstable and more out of control. Um, and I developed a, a pretty severe eating disorder that first year um, where I that was the only thing I could really control. And, you know, in this chaotic life that was I did had no tool. I felt like I had no tools for Um 
that was the one thing. It was like I clung to that and my academic studies. That was just like, okay, well, my world's going to get very, very small and that's going to make me feel safer. Um, that led to a lot of, a lot more pain over the years that carried into college. Um, I don't know if I, if you want me to get into the level of detail of Please. college and all that stuff, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it kind of set me on a path to, I, I felt safer to keep my world small and to keep running. That was, that was what was necessary for me um, to be okay in the world. And alcohol entered the picture in, you know, I was 20, 21 years old, but um, that, that freshman year of college, it got like my eating disorder got so bad that I, and it happened so fast that my parents freaked out, but the way that they handled it and my, the way my family handled it, even my brother's. Uh, Cause I hadn't seen them in a while. Nobody knew what to do. It was clear that there was a really severe problem. I, uh, I think what I lost like 15 or 20 pounds in a couple of months. And at the time, I mean, now I'm, I'm, I'm a super healthy weight and I'm very strong and, and fit and have a lot of muscle mass and I weigh about 160 pounds, but on my frame, then I was maybe 115. And yeah, it was scary. And granted, I, you know, when I finished high school, I was probably only 135, 140 pounds, but that's still on a tiny frame. That is a significant amount of weight in a very short period of time. And I was going to die. Like, there's no question. I was so committed and I didn't see it. I mean, I saw it, but you know, the, the problem, and, and there's a lot of neuroscience to show this with eating disorders your brain literally rewires to not see the reality of what's going on. So you look at yourself and you really truly don't see it the way other people see it. And so I was like, I know I have a problem. I'm really worried about where this is going. I'm actually self-conscious about how I look like this wasn't a body image thing for me. This was a safety control. It could have been drugs. It could have been, you know, porn. It could have been violence. I could have picked any other tool to cope, but this is what I chose, you know, I, I, and I don't even know that it was a conscious choice. It just sort of developed as like, well, this seems to work. Let me just try this as a, a way to be okay in the world. Um, so I, I, that was a pretty big alarm bell for me. And I was like, you know, I don't want to go home to this environment that is not healthy for me, but I, if I stay here, I'm really worried about what's going to happen. And so I transferred home my freshman midway through my freshman year to go back to Texas and live with my folks and go to community college the next semester to try to like figure out what is going on and what to do next. Nothing changed. I buried myself in studies. I continued the behavior, but I was, it, it almost got worse for me because I was now back home and I felt like a failure. And there was a lot of shame around leaving the school. Oh, like it, it felt like giving up. And I was like embarrassed about that. But my eating disorder behavior didn't change. My mentality didn't change. I actually got like put like harder. Like I, I put more armor on because I didn't want to be back in that environment around my parents who were felt like making everything worse. And the way my family handled it, I remember being like, 
knowing that I had an issue, but wanting somebody just to understand and and meet me with compassion and understanding. And the kind of comments that my family was saying was like, God, Kate, just eat a fucking cheeseburger. God, Kate, like, why don't you, you know, like that kind of like intense, um, almost felt like bullying from my, from my family, um, which anybody in that state is just going to drive them harder into it. You know, I mean, that's just going to be like, well, fuck you watch this. You know, it's sort of the, you know, like, honestly, that's, I hate to say it, but that's sort of how it became for me. I was like, well, if you guys are going to treat me like this, then, you know, like I'm really not going to let go of this. Um, it becomes a very competitive, very, the voice that's in your head when you're going through something like that is so mean and it's so strong. It's really scary, but you start to identify with it. And that is tough for people to understand, I think. Um, so my, my family was, you know, for understandable reasons, super worried, but just didn't know what to do. Um, that, that continued. I decided to apply to a local school. So I applied to UT Austin, got in my sophomore year was like, okay, I got to get out of the house. Let me go to the dorms. Well, (laughs) the dorms were even worse. My roommate was, uh, not helpful. She was clinically depressed and, um, she was cutting herself and in a really bad mental place. She kept the, the shades drawn, um, all the time in our dorm. So it was like a cave in there. And I was like, oh my God, I can't, this isn't working either. Like I need to, this, I need something else. So then my parents were like, okay, well, what do we do? Let's help her find an apartment. Maybe that'll help. Maybe she just needs some freedom. So then I get an apartment and then, um, that we had some other stuff going on in our family at the time. I had my aunt and grandma come live with us and, that took my parent, what little attention that was still there for me and whatever love and compassion was still there for me. And totally that little piece that was left disappeared because now we had other people in the house that my mom felt pulled pulled towards to take care of and, and be with. Um, and, uh, and, and so I was just like, okay, I need to just, you know, get out of this environment completely and, and be on my own. Um, and around that time, because of the like bullying and like, Kate, why don't you eat this? Why don't, why are you starving yourself? And they didn't understand that it wasn't like a conscious choice, like choice. It was just this behavior. I couldn't stop that. I was like, fine, I'll eat whatever. And I remember that there was a, um, uh, there's a box of donuts sitting on the counter. Um, and they had left my mom and, and aunt and grandma left to go do something. My dad was at work and I was like, fine, I'll eat the donuts, you know, sort of like, just leave me alone. And I started eating one. And and the problem with starvation that um, actually there's some studies around this uh, with prisoners of war when they come back and they're starved and emaciated and they're allowed to naturally refeed, they oftentimes will binge and they'll binge to the point of being so full that they'll purge. Like it's just, it's like they can't physically stop. Their brain is in survival mode and it's it's saying we need all of the calories we can get. And that's where I was at at this point. I had been starving myself for a year and a half. And uh, my body, every time I did try to naturally feed myself, would just overeat to the point of like being out of control. And that's what happened this this particular instance where it's just like just devoured this entire box of donuts and and felt sick and then 
purged afterwards. And the relief that I felt after that was like, I would imagine heroin or cocaine, that feeling of stillness and emptiness and peace afterwards where the whole world was like expansive, but quiet. I was like, oh, this is even better. And that started a 15 year relationship with bulimia. So you were anorexic before and then basically transitioned to bulimia. Yep. Okay. Yep. And with bulimia, so I started to, I would say that I started to, in that process of after that first year, first year and a half of college, getting my own apartment. And then um, it really, so this is a piece, sorry, this is so much, I'm saying so much, but uh, my family gets transferred back to Florida. My dad, his work transfers him back to Florida from Texas, my, the end of my sophomore year while I was in, in Texas. And I had had an apartment at that time, um, but I still wasn't happy and want to run to the next thing that's going to fix me and get out of this environment. And so um, I was like, well, I'll transfer back to Florida where I have friends. It's a better fit. My parents will be there. Um, this will be great. So I do transfer schools again and get to the University of Florida. And that's my junior year. That is when things start to get better for me. So I would say that, I mean, clearly I was still bulimic for many years after, but I really started to feel safer and better to a degree where I was able to start refeeding like normal, eat like a normal human being again, most of the time. But so I started to put weight back on. It took time. I was very, I was still super active, running a bunch, swimming a bunch, swimming a bunch, doing triathlons and things like that, which is, can be another form of bulimia. It's just exercise induced. But that that was part of what I was doing too as an athlete. But on the outside, as I started to put some weight back on and people were coming into my life for the first time at that time, they saw a driven, healthy, athletic human being. They didn't know the mental pain. They didn't know the mental health side of things, how scary it got. They didn't know that I was still really hurting on the inside. They just saw an elite performer because I was winning races. I was in school, uh, finished finished undergrad and went to graduate school um, for a PhD in, in uh, neurophysiology or it's physiology, but there's a heavy emphasis on neuroscience. Um, and our lab was a neurophysiology lab. And so people are like, well, she's she's accomplishing things. Look at her. She can't be, she can't be that bad. You know what I mean? Like it's this weird perception that we have of people who are successful and what success is. So they can't be fucked up. They can't be sick. They can't be hurting and in pain, but like we are masters at hiding that stuff. And, and I work with a lot of guys in, in, the, you know, the veteran community and women too, um, um, but mostly men and and some from the special operations community and all of these people that I work with are such masters at hiding how they're really doing. And it's so like d- living that way is so damaging by keeping that to yourself. It just drives it deeper and it perpetuates your inability to heal. And for me, I didn't, I mean, this is all stuff that like, I've only been in true recovery from alcohol abuse, my eating disorder, all of the mental struggles I've been going through really within this past year. Like it is very, very recent for me. 
But the freedom I have now is incredible. And the feelings that I have now being truly free are something that I would wish for everybody, but it takes so much painful honesty and vulnerability and a willingness to let other people see you in your pain and and really in the mess that you feel like you've created. Um, but you know, for people in the community that I work with and I and I coach, they are also the people who, as you know well, you guys are, you know, the service members, right? So it's a whether it's first responders or, or military service members, you guys are in service to your communities and to others. And you always want to take care of everybody else first. And that is something that is is beautiful and honorable. And we need people like that, but it can't be to the detriment of yourself. And you can't hide the things that you're going through to keep performing and to maintain, you know, an image of uh, what you want people to think. So they're not worried about you. It's that's, you know, we, we all need each other and we need to be honest and, and healing requires that. So for me, I tried to pretend, I mean, I lied to myself about how bad I was doing and, and I was like, oh, it can't be that bad. I'm still performing. I'm still functioning. I can go to the gym and lift heavy. I can do these races. My health can't be that bad, you know? And it's like, uh, until you go see a professional or talk to somebody and get some a different perspective, like, you know, it, it, you can really be effective at lying to yourself. But when you do finally see it, it's like, holy shit. Like, I mean, I honestly should have been dead multiple times by now because of how I was treating myself and, and what I was doing. Um, and I'm grateful that I'm not, but I do feel like there are a lot of people out there doing things that are in that kind of place and don't see it. And it breaks my heart because I don't think we have to suffer. Like for me now to look back, it's like, man, I didn't have to suffer so long if I had just had better tools and support and help along the way. And I mean, I needed to, to get to this place that where I am today. So I'm not upset about that at all. Um, you know, it took as long as it took for me to wake up and, and be okay. Uh, some people don't get that that option. Um, but yeah, this is a backdrop. I'm saying all this to share a backdrop of what I was going through as I was also moving through my career. So, you know, after grad school, I went on and did work at um, a prestigious respiratory hospital for my postdoc in Denver. And we can dive into some of that work there. And um, from there, I, I transitioned to teaching at a medical school and then worked in industry, started my own company, and kind of just been working in the military medical space for the past seven years and can jump into all of those different layers. But I don't know, I, I kind of didn't really have an agenda for what I wanted to say. But for some reason, as we started talking, I felt like I really needed to unpack that as like a just an honest truth about my journey that I don't think I've ever really shared in that level of detail. It usually just say, stays kind of superficial on, you know, what, what, what do you do and what is the trajectory of your career kind of thing. But um, I feel like that's an important part of my story. So I'll leave it there. And then I, I will let you ask a question <laughs> for uh, the, the 40 minutes I've been talking. <laughs> no, no, but here's the thing. So firstly, thank you. And I mean that wholeheartedly. We could have a conversation about neuroscience and breath and sleep, and it would be fascinating. But mm -hmm. it would be superficial, as you said. It's your yeah. work. It's not who you are. And the reason why I love these early questions, the early life questions, is sometimes people are like, I did this, I did this, my life was good, beautiful. Okay, let's move on. 
mm-hmm. more often than not, I'll give you a perfect example, Dan John, the revered strength and conditioning coach. I expected to kind of, you know, gloss over the early life and then get into lifting and, and that kind of thing. And he spent, again, almost an hour talking about the trauma. His father, if I got this right, I'm trying to remember now, was a World War II vet. And then his brother was a Vietnam vet. Um, and uh, either that or there was two brothers, different agings. But anyway, um, it was fascinating. And again, that multi-generational trauma. And he just unpacked a whole bunch of stuff too. This is what we need. This is what creates buy-in. Now people are yeah. like, okay, when Kate's telling me about all these other things, I know that she understands it. And you know that you're talking to a community where buy-in is imperative. You know, you walk in and, and we don't think that you get it, we'll shut down completely. Totally. So I want to yeah. pull out a few things that, that you talked about. Firstly, the baby analogy. That is something that I talk about all the time. Because <laughs> when you if you want to be a little bit more extreme, just talk about, you know, the homeless, you know, men and women, the addicts, the prostitutes. They were preschoolers once, playing with each other. You know, you think about the the clan members and the Antifa members, they were also in a kindergarten, probably playing with people of different colours and you know, on oh, sexual orientation and, and religions. And so that in itself is, is, a, is a fascinating topic. What, what are we doing as a society where we have this blank canvas potential to raise beautiful, kind, compassionate children? And in some cases, we end up raising, you know, tyrants and, and all these other negative human beings that really, really destroy communities and countries. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, We really truly are, the more I, honestly, the the more I dive into neuroscience, this is something that feels intuitive to me, but the more I dive into the neuroscience around this, it does seem that we are so heavily influenced by our caregivers and the environment that we grow up in. And very few of us get exactly what we need. And maybe none of us get exactly what we need to, to thrive fully. Do we overcome that? Of course. And and certain things that maybe are due to our genetics, so many things that are unknown, but some of us overcome adversity and become stronger and better for it. And others, you know, get crushed under it. We don't necessarily know exactly what the formula is for making people end up, you know, coming out a certain way. But for those who grow up in an environment where parents are like my, my, I have a, I have a perfect example. My parents you know, like I said, I love them. And, and they were wired for trauma, for being stoic, for not dealing with their emotions, for not being available emotionally, for checking out when things get hard. All of those things were their coping mechanisms because they grew up in super fucked up and abusive households that that was how they then raised my brothers and I, and they weren't even conscious of it. So to answer your question, I think that it requires a tremendous effort on the caregiver's aspect of of raising a child. It It requires a tremendous aspect of, or tremendous amount of effort on their part to be honest with themselves and look at themselves and to figure out where they're, they're still wounded and where they need to address their own patterns and behaviors that are automatic, that are maybe unhelpful and where they're checking out in the world and 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 how they're talking about things, even just the ways that we phrase things, making jokes. You know, I mean, I grew up in a household where uh, 
people who were overweight were made fun of and called lazy. And I had overweight people in my family. But do you think that that played into my eating disorder in a subconscious way? Of course it did. Um, that's stuff that like, you know, you really have to not, not be afraid to say anything around children, but be conscious as a human being, as a caregiver, it's a responsibility that you need to be conscious of, of what you're programming into this young, uh, you know, adaptive plastic brain that will set them up on their path down the road. And unfortunately, I think when parents are overwhelmed, trying to manage the best that they can, they're just trying to survive too. They don't have the extra capacity to really be there for the kids in the way that they need to. And then when they're not, not only is that sending them a specific message, but then who is raising them? Technology, their peers, their classmates, whatever that that combination is for that child, that's what they're consuming. And when they're plugged into phones these days, or computer screens, and they are consuming media that is intentionally divisive, they're going to start to see, I've got to pick a side because I have to survive in this world. And I don't want to be on the losing side. So who's getting, you know, who's on the winning side. And that's, you know, unfortunately, what's what's being pushed to, to children these days. Um, is there is there some sort of point where maybe kids are like, Hey, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. Why are the adults so angry? Maybe. I think that some younger generations are actually seeing that maybe they want to be more inclusive, you know, and, and maybe they want to be more, uh, like less divisive. I, I, I've seen some really beautiful examples of young people who are really open-hearted that do give me some hope, but you know, I just, <laughs> It's a a really tough, really tough question. I don't know. I don't know if I have any answer for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just from my observation, you know, through my career, through this podcast, I mean, we're almost 700 conversations now. So it's a lot of incredible people from around the world, a lot of different perspectives. And there are real common denominators. Multi-generational trauma is absolutely you know, a, a cancer in our society at the moment, oh, or yeah. unaddressed, should I say. I mean, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you right now, I mean, my parents had a pretty horrendous divorce. Um, there was some other trauma. I was in a fire when I was young. But um, that touching on that, that abandonment issue too, when they divorced, I was one of five kids. My older sister had already moved out, but I was the, the older brother. And then there was three younger siblings. And my mom took them to another house. My dad moved out because he'd sold the house. So I was in this farmhouse that used to be idyllic where I grew up with all my children, all my siblings, excuse me, my tribe, because we lived out and not in the boonies, but we were we were detached from from the the town we lived next to. And so that was my world. And so I can align firstly with that, that element of of abandonment. I want to make sure I hit on that because I think that is probably more prevalent than people realize, whether they're tribe was removed from them or more often than not, you go to college or you get an apartment and now you're removed from your tribe. Same same um, effect. But what maddens me is that when you talk about sides, I watch these two political extremes that we have at the moment, and I can't stand either of them. No. And yeah. if you want to continue this cycle of violence and suicide and addiction and all these other things that plague our nation then keep dividing people, keep getting them fighting, keep getting to not look in the mirror and start you know, owning their own shit and addressing it. 
then we will, you know, cultivate the same thing. What I want to see, whether it's in a home, a community, or a nation, is a leader. And I'm, I'm getting Tulsi Gabbard coming on the show, show soon. I think she, for example, is one person that could do this. But it's to people just to come from a place of kindness and compassion and start bringing people together and get them to understand that if we address our own shit, it might be too late for our parents' generation, you know? Right. But yeah. we can at least address it for the next generation. And I agree with you 100%. There's so many things that are written off as genetic. I mean, I think obesity. How many people believe that they have, you know, it's their thyroid that's to blame? And I guarantee you, if you climb inside their mind, you chose the eating, well, chose, excuse me, you found yourself with an eating disorder that, you know, restricted you from eating. I think the 70% of the country that's obese and overweight is a massive, massive element of mental health and the obesity epidemic that we have as well, combined with the fucking awful environment that the worst food is around them and good healthy food is really hard to find. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not hard for me to understand addiction at all because when you're miserable and that could be a product of things in your control or outside of your control, it doesn't really matter. But when you're miserable and you just want to escape that feeling, whether it's physical misery or emotional misery, often both, you're going to try to find a way to escape it. And that could be by overeating. That could be by alcohol, which is, I would argue, the pandemic really broke that open for our nation. Uh, well, probably, you know, multiple, multiple nations across the world, but that, you know, we're, we're coping in really unhealthy ways. And we really need to, I think to, if we're going to have any solid quality of life moving forward, really start to address that and, and have compassion and, and really, like you said, I mean, that the divisiveness is causing so much um, animosity and, and so many problems. And then this addiction piece where we've got, you know, terrible resources, people are, you know, the inflation's super high, people can't afford to live anywhere, they can't afford to buy groceries or put gas in their vehicles. And yet the thing that is so painful to watch is although all of that's true, it's causing so much pain for, for individuals, they're willing to spend money on whatever that addiction might be, whether it's, you know, alcohol or uh, food, overeating food or porn addiction or whatever, whatever drugs, any of those things that cost money. It's like, that's where you see the people who end up homeless and selling their bodies just to get another hit of something. That's where it ends up. If it's allowed to progress unchecked and goes to a really severe place, those people are, uh, I've heard stories of, of women selling their young babies for drugs. I mean, this is not this is not news and it's tragic that we're allowing these things to happen where we're not taking care of our community the people i think we've we've lost that sense of community in a lot of ways and because of this divisiveness and because it's everybody's in survival mode and it's sort of a um i got to look out for me i don't have the bandwidth to look out for you and also i don't like your politics or you know any of those types of reasons to look for ways to stay divided instead of you know, the time when there's always, you know, I think we always look back on our early years or early generations as like better than, you know, I think adults tend to do this of like how I grew up is better than how you're growing up today sort of thing. Um, but I, I will say that at least, you know, the neighborhoods I was growing up in, in the eighties and early nineties, 
there was a sense of community. You kind of did know who your neighbors were. And maybe it's not like the houses right next to you, but in that vicinity where kids could walk around or ride their bikes, it's like you had, if there was anything anybody needed, you would help each other out. And that seems like we've lost it or it's it's just harder to find these days. Um, and I think that makes it even easier. The pandemic, of course, made it worse. Everybody started to kind of keep to themselves, but um, there's just so many things that are, are creating, that are exacerbating the problems. And I think it's going to have to come from leadership. I think we need somebody who is is a uniter, who can come in and lead with common sense and compassion and strength rather than sowing the seeds of further just divisiveness in our, in our nation and in the world. I mean, it's just, it's not just us when we're experiencing this as a, as a global society, I would say, but it takes somebody with like a, you know, just somebody who's really has a backbone, I think. Yeah. Well, I've, I've said, yeah, the problem with our, our voting system at the moment is you have to be a millionaire and you have to have no ethics to get in that position. Is that the prerequisite of a good leader? Absolutely not. Right. So, you know, there was no better example of me of the leadership void that multiple countries around the world have than this last two years, where, as you said, you've already got this, this kind of physical and mental health crisis going on. You lock people away from friends, family, community, you close the parks, the beaches, the gyms, and then you tell them, well, you can get fast food and alcohol delivered to your house. You know, it couldn't have, if you and I wrote down, how do we destroy a nation? That is exactly what you would do physically and mentally. And yet we had such an amazing opportunity to move the needle everywhere from the environment, which we saw trying to heal until we completely fucked it over again, yep. through to, you know, physical and, and mental health progress and proactive measures. So, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking and it worries me now. I mean, I'm seeing I appear seemingly an amplification of an already horrendous mental health crisis as we emerge from those last couple of years. Yeah, and the, the you know, the scary thing too is that a lot of people don't realize that how tightly intertwined their mental and physical health are. And I have very very real personal experiences of running into people who don't see this. And these aren't people I'm coaching, but just folks that I've met or friends of mine or even family members where um, they're not doing the things that you and I talked about earlier, the basics of getting sunlight, spending time in nature, moving your body, journaling, yoga, meditation, eating really healthfully, avoiding alcohol. They're not doing any of those things. They're working too much, they're not sleeping right. They're smoking too much weed or drinking too much alcohol and their body and, you know, just fast food or whatever, their, their body is chronically stressed. We know that chronic stress leads to systemic inflammation and brain inflammation. This isn't rocket science. This is, you know, physiology kind of one-on-one at this point. And inflammation causes drastic shifts in mental health. And this is all very very evident. And knowing that people still don't make the connection that I feel physically awful and my thoughts about the world or this person or uh, my job or my spouse might actually not be this that I'm feeling today. 
maybe my body, you know, maybe my body actually has something to do with how I'm feeling about this. And guaranteed, if they were to get healthy and do all those things, that mental thought that they, that thought that they had and that mental state that they were in, where they made all these judgments about, I hate this job. I don't like my spouse anymore. I don't want to do with the deal with this stuff. Like it's actually probably not that bad. And, and I've seen it so many times. I've experienced this in my own life. When I started to take better care of myself, all of the things that were problems that I needed to keep running from, all of a sudden I was like, this is workable. I feel good and I can handle this. And I'm optimistic about this. And I can, uh, I can f- feel like I have agency in my own life about all of these things. But I see people just trashing their bodies and then having such intense thoughts about people or events. And they're not realizing, hey, if you were actually to take care of yourself, you might not perceive the world or these people or whatever as as bad as you do. And it's scary to me that they don't understand or see that. And they're really feeling like this is instinctual. This or it's not even instinctual. It's um uh what is the word I'm looking for? Um intuitive. That this is like an intuition and it's a gut feeling. You'll hear hear people say that all the time. And not I don't I do believe that there are true gut feelings um, that people can experience, but a lot of these types of gut feelings are rooted in affect. And there's a really good book on this. If anybody is like, I don't buy this, there's a a really great book called How Emotions Are Made. I just posted about it, but uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett uh, is a psychologist and neuroscientist, and she dives into what we actually know about emotion and that uh, she talks about affect and how, whether you're feeling pleasant or unpleasant, aroused or or lethargic, that influences everything about how you perceive the world, including yourself. And if you're unaware of that, you're kind of a slave to your own, the construction of your own mind, rather than being engaged in rewiring that in a healthy way or a way that's productive for you. So I do think that people should be more aware of like, wow, I shouldn't, you know, feeling pretty shitty today. Like, no wonder I'm really pessimistic about, pessimistic about all these things. Maybe I shouldn't make a decision today or react to this person today or send that email today. Maybe I need to like take, take better care of myself, give it a night, respond in the morning or make that decision in the morning. So be my two cents for anyone out there who's going through that. <laughs> yeah. Well, firstly, I know my barometer is driving. Like there are some assholes on the, the on the roads, period. And I don't think that this country does a very good job of setting the standards and driving tests very high, which yeah. is why we have one of the highest deaths on the road per capita of any country on the planet. That's another entire conversation. But my response to the bad driving is absolutely an expression of how I'm doing on the inside. So if I start getting angry on the roads, I'm like, okay, I need to check in. I need to, you know, kind of figure out what's going on. So... You talk today, for example, about being sleep deprived. A lot of the people listening are chronically sleep deprived. You know, I mean, horrendously over years and years and years and years. Funny, my, my ex is in nursing school now and she's had to do a couple of night shift clinicals. And she's like, you know, I can't do it. It's terrible. I'm like, well, <laughs> this is what I did right. for decades. Totally. This is, you know, this is horrendous. So talk to me. You talked about the chronic inflammation not affecting the mind. I know you're not well entrenched in the sleep medicine world, but with you know the exposure that you've had through neuroscience and working alongside some of these departments, talk to me about that, the impact of sleep deprivation on the brain and the body that you're you know, seeing in some of the responders that you work with as well. Mm-hmm. 
Man, that is the one thing I would say sleep and alcohol are the two things that really just, just not only do they influence each other, well, alcohol impacts sleep, but just either one on its own can, can cause such intense shifts for a person and how they feel and how they function. Um, and it's, it's, I, I don't, I think because we get used to it, especially in, um, the first responder space, the healthcare professional space where people are working these, these weird shifts and maybe it's night shifts or maybe the even worse, maybe it's night and day shifts and they don't actually have a regular schedule and their circadian rhythm is all over the place. Um, it really impacts people in a significant way. And it, it has to do with, I mean, just cognitive ability alone as far as functioning goes. So being able to respond quickly or, even make clear choices or even, you know, I'm sure people have experienced this, but even trying to find the right words, putting thoughts together, like following these long tangents and coming back to, you know, your thoughts and solving problems. Um, It's, it really impacts you cognitively, but emotionally too. I mean, you, when you, when you're sleep deprived, you're at a lower affective state, you're tired, you feel more discomfort. So everything that you see, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier about Lisa Feldman Barrett's work and, and others in the neuroscience arena, it's going to color everything about your world. And that chronic sleep deprivation leads to impacts that are very similar to chronic stress that are that systemic inflammation. And you have immune priming that for people who might be faced with exposures to illness in the, the healthcare arena, for example, or in the first responder space, your your nervous system and your immune system become primed due to this inflammation that they become primed for overreacting if you have a subsequent insult or not being prepared enough to react depending on how you know if you're if you're in the chronic phase or the acute phase but for example i you know i see this a lot with traumatic brain injury because it's something that i studied for a long time, and I don't actively participate in TBI research right now, but I still keep tabs on on the research community. And even that, you know, if you have a, an immune system that's primed due to illness or chronic stress or sleep deprivation, and then somebody gets a traumatic brain injury, outcomes are far worse. And the damage that it, the inflammation seems to peak and then doesn't subside. And that can lead to the, the chronic inflammation in the brain can lead to those long-term outcomes that are um, really detrimental for people. So sleep impacts people in, in the same way. And we know now from, from research that sleep is critical for, as they say, like washing the brain, essentially removing the metabolites that build up throughout the day that when you have a good night of sleep, you have highly efficient neuronal function. But if you don't, and it's like the, you know, the brain is sort of um, overloaded with um, metabolites and it's un it's inefficient in functioning. And so, you know, you, you don't feel as good. It is sharp as clear, uh, reaction times are going to be a lot less. So for people who handle firearms for a living, if you're chronically sleep deprived, your reaction time, your judgment time, all of that will be impaired. And it might still be far better than the average human being, but for you personally, it'll be impaired. And actually, there was a study, I went to a Special Operations Medical Association conference a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, and there was a study done where they were looking at, uh, I can't remember the exact outcomes, if it was how they were measuring 
cognitive function and reaction time. I don't remember the tests they used, but they looked at sleep impairment in um, operators and they looked at a, a shift in sleep. Uh, it wasn't durate. They also looked at a shift. It wasn't sleep duration, but it was um, when they woke up. So it was like a wake up of they shifted the sleep time from maybe say like, uh, I think they woke them up at like four in the morning as, as one example. And then the other example was like, I think it was six or seven in the morning, but they shifted the time they went to sleep by the same appropriate amount. So they ultimately got the same amount of sleep. And they found that actually that earlier wake up, if you wake somebody up between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that period of time is actually really critical for performance and if they just shifted the sleep schedule to where people were waking up after 6 a.m., they had improved performance, even though they essentially got the same amount of sleep, um, which was interesting. But they also did detect, uh, I think it was a five-hour sleep cycle that they did. Um, and so it was restricted sleep for individuals. And they found like a 30% reduction in uh, reaction time and, and cognitive function for the tests that they did. Um but it was, it was fascinating. And it's stuff that like you kind of know, but until you measure it, you're like, whoa. And that's where wearables or, you know, some of that technology actually is helpful because a lot of people don't, don't buy it. They're like, yeah, I'm tired, but I'm totally fine. It's, I can still perform the same. And the truth is you can't, you absolutely can't, even though you convince yourself, it's like alcohol, you're, you're driving impaired, you're performing impaired. You think you're okay, but you're not. And that over time really keeps your body and your nervous system in this in this chronically stressed state to where you really are in survival mode and it's really hard to unwind from that and re- like teach your body that and your your nervous system that you're actually okay so i always tell people who have been living lives like that regardless of what the profession was that you know it doesn't happen overnight to get back to this normal, uh, quote unquote normal or whatever's normal for you, um, state of functioning. It's going to take some time to rework that and that you just have to be disciplined and persistent and know that you're going to stumble through it for a little while, but don't give up that it's possible to get back to a healthy place. So, but it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the most detrimental things that we can do. And that is a whole other pandemic, I think in, um, the hustle societies of the world today. Absolutely. Well, you you look at the the pandemic. This is one thing I was saying at the very beginning. The men and women that we that were holding the line, who ultimately some of them got fired for not having a vaccine and were super selfish, <laughs> um, which now we're realizing is absolute bullshit as well. Um, you know that I worry me because these were the people that are chronically sleep deprived: the doctors, the nurses, the firefighters, the police officers, you know, dispatchers, you know, corrections. All these people that are you know. While everyone else is cowering in their home, ordering pizza and and beer, these are the people that are actually holding the line. Um, so you have that that vulnerability, and then you look at the incidence of cancer and you know autoimmune disease and heart disease and all these things, that, and then obviously the mental health side that are killing our responders. So that's the uh, you know the chronic element, the acute element. When I look, or a combination of chronic and acute, when I look at what we call line of duty deaths. You know, a lot of them are disorientation in a fire, falling from an aerial ladder or roof, um, these intersection wrecks where they die and or kill civilians. 
Um, and you look again at the impact of sleep and you never hear this, the, the shootings, you know, the ones that are caught, the kind of gray area ones, not the George Floyd that was blatant and then, you know, not the ones that were completely justified, but those kid reaches for his driving license to get shot and the, th- the guy thought he was reaching for a gun. What element of sleep deprivation was was included in that whole conversation? Had that person had to be, you know, forced to do another shift? Had they not slept for 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours? So these are all such important conversations. And what kills me is we talked about simplicity and pillars of health. The answer is simply to give these responders more time off in between their shifts to recover. And yet that is an argument that these so-called leaders of the agencies just don't want to hear but it's such a short-sighted element because financially the cost of killing your responders far as outweighs the money it would it would you know take to just simply add more personnel give people more time off and they actually would save money hand over fist on the back end as well yeah that is uh something that i have conversations around a lot with the folks that i work with in the first responder space and um, you know, some people find that, you know, as they start diving into what is the best option for me and my family health wise, some of the folks, they love what they do, but they're like, I can't in good faith continue in this line of work because I know what it's doing to me. And that breaks my heart because they love their work and we need excellent first responders out there. But people are starting to get to the point where they're like, I don't know if I want to do this to myself or my family anymore. And, you know, I, I try to keep people as healthy as possible, give them the tools that they can to manage as best they can while they're still in because they want to stay, but it's, there's certain things that are out of your, their control. And that's exactly it. I mean, the shift is, is one of those aspects. And I always argue and advocate for giving training people well, and and same with the military, train people well, give them everything they need to thrive. And these people will be in it for the long haul. They will have, uh, they'll be in it to, and and healthfully the entire time they'll make good decisions. It's a a worthy investment. Absolutely. But if, you know, we've got to change the way that we, that we do this. And there's a lot of momentum around the tradition and around how things have been done in the past. But again, this is, is similar to what we were talking about before with political leadership in that somebody needs to shake the snow globe a little bit with some of the traditional ways that we've been doing things. When you look around and you're like, hey, it's not working and look at what it's doing to people. Something's got to give. How do you get through to the leadership? How do you actually get through to those people? Do you just wait for them to retire? Like, I don't I don't know what the answer is there, but I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, the the thing is, I mean, the tradition word is a real kind of stickler for me because I always use the American fire helmet really as a symbol for our resistance to change. So that's literally, I've got, you you can see in the background, I've got these little patterns up on the wall. One of them is for the leather fire helmet that most of us wore through our whole career. And it's from the 1930s. Now there's an element of ridiculing the European fire helmet because they look like spacemen. And here's the irony, those leather helmets are also absorbing all the carcinogens as well, but they're heavy, they're cumbersome. I actually worked East Coast and West Coast and the West Coast helmet that I wore was a lot smaller and it was so much better. The European helmets with all the technology they have built in are you know, heads and shoulders above all of these, but it's, it's not tradition, it's become vanity. Well, I wanna look like Kurt Russell. 
and I want a moustache and I want to have soot on my face when I pull the baby out so you can take a picture of me and I can be a hero. And it kind of really goes back to what we were talking about. The identity of the firefighter versus what is the actual purpose. The purpose is to go and make the world better. And to do that, you need to have a work environment that allows you to thrive, which you need to fight for in your department if you're not. And you need to have the equipment. And the Navy SEALs don't run around in tin helmets. They have the latest gear. And so in the fire service, we need to advocate for that as well. So we are our own worst enemy. And this kind of bullshit, heroic, oh, I can take you know X amount of hours, I don't need sleep, is absolute fiction. And we are doing not only ourselves a disservice, but the people we serve. And if someone, you know, comes to my house and pulls my child out and has to work a pediatric mega code, I want that person to be well-trained, well-equipped and well-slept. And that is mm-hmm. not the case at the moment. Yeah. And you don't give a shit what they look like. It's, no. It doesn't matter what you look like. You know, this is not a this is not a superficial profession or shouldn't be. And and we I I definitely agree with you. And I wish that we could get back to that place. And um, I, I, I would encourage that for anybody out there who's listening. But if, if, and I, I mean, I have friends who are in the fire service and they definitely, some of them are, are certainly, um, I think susceptible to the, to the vanities of the profession. Um, like every profession has that, you know, that layer to it, but, uh, but they are very proficient folks, but they're also the ones who, who don't talk about, how they're doing really, you know, there's still, there's still so much of that going on of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing well. And part of that I understand is they don't want to, you know, they don't want their teammates to know that maybe they're not okay that day. Um, But because they don't want to get pulled from the team or they don't want to, they don't want to miss a specific call or, you know, they want to be still in the action. But I think that's another place where people need to across the board, start being radically honest with themselves about really how they're doing and then start sharing that with other people. And there are unfortunately ramifications. I have a lot of friends who did try to speak up about needing help in the military and got uh, punished for it. And that sucks. That should not be happening to anybody. And I would, you know, I, I understand why people make those judgment calls and it's personal and I would never encourage somebody to do something that they don't want to do. But I do think that that's got to change and people have to start being brave about, making making that shift and and being honest because if everybody keeps doing what we've always done we'll have what we've always had so um i yeah i don't know just a little my hope for the future with people um kind of trying to break that mold but it's challenging i get it it's not it's not as easy as just raising your hand and trying to make the change so well i mean what you did earlier telling your story is what we need you know every one of us has a story and i always point out like i never got to the deepest of places i got deep i mean at one point and i've talked about this before i was divorced i was a single dad i was working on one of the busiest rescues in orange county and i was going to paramedic school one of the hardest years of my life you know it was it was horrendous but there were things in place by accident through my childhood that I think allowed me to offset some of that, you know. And so, you know, that life is a roller coaster, but the bottom, you know, part wasn't near suicide. Beautiful. Well, lucky me, you know. So then tell your story about what works as well. All of us need to open up and tell the stories about, you know, the bad things. And for anyone that's questioning that as far as, you know, being a man, listen to the Navy SEALs and the SWAT guys and the SAS and the firefighters and all these alpha masculine people 
on my show, pouring their fucking heart out and telling their stories, some of them in tears, because that's what real men do. That's what real women do. You know, we have to be in a flow state. We have to be tough when we're going into a fire or a firefight. But we also have to have that compassion for ourselves and others before and after. So I think, yeah, that's, yeah, we got to break this facade of masculinity because it's not. It's, it's a Rambo Terminator mythology that we've come up with. It's got nothing to do with what it's actually like to be a human being. Totally. And the, the strongest, most intense warrior types I know are also some of the most compassionate, kind-hearted people. And it's because they got broken open like we did as, as young people, as children, and experienced so much pain and heartache that they would never wish that upon any other people. And yeah, it made them hard and resilient, but it also taught them that that value in being a kind person when you can and understanding the pain of other people. And those same people also are the ones who had the most courage to talk about that and be vulnerable, to talk about their story with other people and to let them see the real version of them, the the truth, because it does take, it takes more courage to share honestly and openly and allow, and allow people to see you as you really are than it does to, to be macho and to put on a front, you know, that's just, it's just a facade. That's actually a cop out in, in a lot of ways it's safer and it's less scary to do that. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm not under, um, underselling how, um, challenging it is. And it's not something that many people can just do overnight. It's something you have to work towards. And when the time is right with the right person or the right audience, you don't just say that to anybody on the street, but you know, and the, the, all of those conditions come together, that is, that's the most tremendous, you know, uh, act that a person could do. And those are the, those are the guys when you're talking about the strength and the warrior types, it's, it's those, those are the ones who, um, I, I think I I've also seen and, and heard stories about of being like, you know, the, the most incredible things you could ever imagine doing the most incredible things you could ever imagine in their career. And then they, they come back and you're like, wow, this person is so compassionate and aware and, and honest. And it's just, it's refreshing, but that's, it reminds me of the book gates of fire. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that Stephen Pressfield. I haven't, but I had it recommended many times. So I need yeah, to. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's a really incredible work. And um, he describes really well how Spartan warriors lived and how, when, and what they did and how they trained, not just physically, but mentally. And he also talks about, there's this really strong, powerful scene that sticks out in my mind. Cause when I read the book, it just, or it, yeah, it just triggered this other thought of, uh, two other books I've read, The Body Keeps the Score and Waking the Tiger, which are both kind of rooted in somatic experiencing and how trauma is stored in the body. And if we don't experience what's happening to us fully and we suppress it, it gets stuck and it creates dysfunction. So he likens it to Stephen, um, not Stephen Pressfield, um, Peter Levine, who wrote Waking the Tiger, describes the natural experience of trauma and uh, war and that it is traumatic for a human being. I don't care how much you've trained to, especially in hand-to-hand combat, that is the most intense thing that a person could do to take a life in that kind of close situation. And these fighters or these warriors are doing this for hours and days on end. 
And he describes this scene as they come back from this particular battle and the men are dropping to their knees and they're shaking and they're weeping and they're, they're holding each other. And it's this profound release of what they just went through. And we look at that and the society we live in today is like tough men don't cry. And, you know, that's, you know, whatever you come up with some other, some other narrative that you've heard. And it's not true, but that's what has been fed to everybody for so long that we forgot that actually that's not one, it's not healthy and two, it's not true. But this particular example was so striking in this book because it's like, yeah, they understood that they released this traumatic thing that they all went through and they recognized this as a normal part of the human experience that anybody who goes through that needs to do. And um, Peter Levine talks about that in wild animals, how you see, you'll see that in wild animals after they escape from a predator, for example, and they'll sit there and shake and just like have this nervous system release and then they'll move on with their day. And there's like, you know, there's no issue. And in the same way, when you experience something traumatic to allow yourself to feel it and then to be able to, um, discharge that energy and kind of complete this, this trauma loop or the stress cycle, um, is, health is a healthier outcome ultimately is according to him than allowing it to get stuck by suppressing your experience or dissociating or whatever, you know, you may do to avoid feeling. And I think because we are human beings, you know, the whole idea that we need to suppress our emotions and be stoic is just silly. Like we're, we're wired to feel and there's nothing wrong in that. And we should just embrace that and allow ourselves the space to do it um, and not shame people for it, especially men in the warrior, you know, types out there. Um, that's, that's unhelpful uh, completely, but those two books are really interesting as, as is the gates of fire. So I would recommend those. Beautiful. That was one of my closing questions. She just took care of that. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> yeah, no, for I sure. agree. I think some of the, there was a there was a common denominator when I first kind of got into this space, and a lot of the people that I found hurting were the muscular, tattooed, shaved head men. They just were, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, the, you think about some of the the ridiculous stuff that we've been fed, whether it's the you know the the bodybuilding style of working out, which works for bodybuilding but is not great for the tactical athlete for example the way we were taught to eat um this is your brain on drugs i mean all these fucking you know propaganda that we were exposed to that ultimately were rooted in people just selling stuff and making a lot of money and i think that was you know that was one of the philosophies was people kind of listen to to people like john wayne who really wasn't heroic in any way shape or form as a human being and they're, then they're kind of taking that character and being, oh, this is what I need to be. And it's like, no, no, you know, there is a time to be in a flow state. There's a time to put your big boy pants on and you have to, you know, remove the the kind of the kindness, compassion element and go in there totally. and, and do what you got to do. But after that, you've got to process that. And I, yeah. I, just to underline something that you said, I can tell you hands down some of the most dangerous men and women on the planet that I know are simultaneously some of the kindest men and women I know on the planet. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. It, it often seems to go hand in hand and it, it seems like a lot of other people, and they're also the ones who don't have to say it, you know, you just know it and they'll demonstrate it, but they don't talk about it. They're just living life, right? It's the, it's the other people who are talking about it, who often, you know, may not really be that, that way. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah, there was 
something else I wanted to say, but my foggy brain is <laughs> losing the thread right now. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to kind of lead you through the the neuroscience um, path because we've been talking for almost an hour and a half. We haven't even got to that really yet. Oh, so. my God. I, wow. <laughs> yep. So, um, but I, I just want to kind of get the origin story because I heard you on the Brass and Unity podcast. It's a great conversation. So, talk to me about how young you were when you first found yourself drawn to neuroscience. Oh man, I I was born a nerd. I think I got uh my first book about the brain when I was maybe 13, but I was always a science lover prior to that um in in school, but I specifically wanted to get a book about the brain when I was before high school. I just wanted to start a study. It was like neuroscience for dummies or something. <laughs> but um I was always fascinated by it. I just, you know, if this drives our whole experience, what do we know? And I really wanted to learn as much as I could on what was out there. And at the time, I was like, it can't be that much that we know. And, you know, I started diving into the research and um, reading books. And as I got into high school and then college, it's like, well, there's more information out there than I could ever absorb. However, I also realized that we really don't know so much about this this organ and how it functions and we're constantly updating and and shifting and adapting our uh perspective on on what exactly it does how it functions what it means for us to be human with this brain that we have and i love that it's like the kind of reminds me of like where we are with neuroscience right now is we're in this place between uh, there's still camps that are like definitively, this is what we know, almost like how physics used to be, where it was like prior to like, you know, quantum physics and, and all of that, when it was sort of more concrete and like, oh, we have it all figured out. Here's the physics of the world. That's kind of how neuroscience feels to me still a little bit. And we're moving into that transition of like, oh, wait, there's this whole other arena of neuroscience that we had no idea about. And that's exciting because there's still like so much discovery to be made. And I think it's good news for, you know, you hear a lot of negativity in the news about the increasing prevalence of neurodegenerative disorders and other brain disorders that, yes, it is scary to see some of some numbers rise for certain conditions. But I also think that that's an indication of the times that we're living in, the way that we're living our lives. But I, th I think the thing that we should all have hope in is that the more that we understand this, I think the more ways we can see how to prevent certain conditions and the more ways that we'll have effective treatments, hopefully that will end up being more naturalistic and not so reductive to we need to find this one chemical for this one receptor in this one type of neuron, because I don't think that's the answer. I do think, and you see a lot in the psychedelic space with people trying to like distill out one particular molecule that is going to be the next therapeutic. And a lot of the psychedelics that are out there today that are effective are coming from whole plants or fungi. And there's a lot of compounds in there that are not psychedelic at all, but that have great health benefits. And the same thing with how we're treating the brain. I, I do think neuroscience sometimes, you know, you've got to be very um, 
specific and sort of reductionist in how you look at things because it's hard to study a lot of, of complex things at once. But ultimately, the system works in an integrated way. So we need to start thinking about how to approach or I guess not start thinking about, but emphasize how we think about brain health in an integrated way. And again, you know, we talked about those, the low hanging fruit, the small things that you could do to help yourself on a regular basis. Most people don't want to do that. They would rather just keep living their lives unhealthfully and wait for some silver bullet to come along. And I'm here to tell you guys that that is not going to happen. Like you have to do the work. There is no definitive thing. You can't treat yourself like crap your whole life and then decide one day that you're just going to go take some pill or do do one thing and fix yourself. It's going to, you know, there's, you really do have to lay that foundation. So start now if that's how you've been thinking about things. But I think we're on the horizon of some really cool discoveries in neuroscience and it's exciting to watch. Now you talked about some of the, the kind of brain ill health um, diseases or manifestations. A couple of things I'd love to kind of put by you. Firstly, I have heard multiple times now um, Alzheimer's referred to as type 3 diabetes. And I had, um, uh, oh my goodness, Dr. Wood on the show. I'm trying to remember his first name. I'm blanking. Um, and uh, Johnny Wood, Dr. Johnny Wood, who's an English neuroscientist, but he lives, I think he works in um, the Pacific Northwest as well. But he was talking about there's two types of Alzheimer's. You've got, you know, early onset, which is the, the disease Alzheimer's. But then you have what we're seeing now, which is, you know, related to glucose tolerance, which is a completely preventable area. And a lot of these dementia patients really shouldn't be going through this. It's definitely, you know, um, excuse me, nutrition and exercise related. What has been your perspective of that philosophy? Oh, I don't know if I'm qualified enough to weigh in on it, but I think from what I what I've read honestly, it, it does make sense to me and I think that uh given what we're seeing in the world today, especially with metabolic disease and and the way that people are living their lives and how many things contribute to inflammation and insulin resistance, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, that, I mean, the good news is that's a pr the preventative thing. Like you can, you, or it's a something that you can prevent. So I think that if we talk about these things in more clear ways as a society and people start to understand and consume this kind of information instead of maybe some other news that is unhelpful, then maybe they can start. I mean, I, I don't know. My hope is that education will change people's behaviors, but I've also been in the place where I know very well that education doesn't always lead to behavioral changes because of where you happen to be in your life. You know, I mean, I perfect example of that. I knew what I was doing to my, my body by being engaged in an eating disorder and abusing alcohol for so long was unhealthy. But I all, like, I was in a mental state where I was like, I don't know what else to do. And at this point, I don't give a shit. This is what I'm doing. You know, this is, this is the tool. These are the tools that I have until I learned other tools and no information in the world was going to stop that. So I worry because we do have people in that place of no amount of information is going to change that or move the needle for them. They've got to have an experience of some kind to make that shift and for a lot of us, it's hitting rock bottom. And unfortunately for many people, sometimes that rock bottom is too late or it's a point of no return. Um, 
can we do it sooner in life, earlier in life with young people? Absolutely. And I think that we we should. These are things we should be teaching in school. These are things that not only should we be teaching in school, but we should be, um, I guess, acting out in school by showing children this is how to eat healthy instead of the stupid school lunches that we have that are so unhealthy. Um, so, I, you know, I, I believe that this is a really compelling argument for explaining Alzheimer's among other neurodegenerative diseases. I don't know that, I mean, there's, there may be more to the picture than just that, but it makes a lot of sense given the backdrop of, of where we're at with the state of health in our world. Yeah, it's the thing is, I don't have enough time to learn about nutrition because I need to stay tuned in on Tom Brady's marriage and Kanye's stance on the uh, Jewish <laughs> community. So I don't have the bandwidth for all this health nonsense that you're telling me, Kate. <laughs> you and 200 million other people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, then that's, that's the thing. It's tough. It is, and it's just it's that shiny object, and you know, the, uh, inherently, as we said, go back to these babies, these toddlers. None of them were dreaming of being obese or, no. you know, or yeah. being addicted to soda or porn or, you know, whatever it is. This is this is the sad thing. So when you talked about people ridiculing, you know, obese people, I look at it completely the other way where I'm I'm sad, not in a pity way, but I'm like, this right. was so fucking preventable. And the, you know, the environment that you were exposed to, here we are now. And it was your home environment, but it's also the environment when you walk out your door. The, yeah. the ability to make a good choice is suppressed at the moment in a lot of, you know, Main Street, you know, USA communities. And so we have to change that where, you know, Joe or Joanne are, are hungry and they can go to all these amazing places and, and what they choose is not only going to be delicious, but it's actually going to nourish them as well. And they have to walk because it's pedestrianized. So their car yep. is parked where, you know, the communal parking lot and they walk to work, they walk to the stores and then they drive home at the end of the day. But we don't have that. Everything is set up for our community to fail. And that is the huge conversation that we need to have. Mm -hmm. It's um. Have you read Michael Easter's book, The Comfort Crisis? Yeah, he was actually on the show. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, a, it's a good example too, of what else is contributing to that is people who are wanting to stay in that comfort zone and not be, you know, inconvenienced or it, uncomfortable in certain ways. And that contributes to to what we're seeing as well. So, um, yeah. And, and the other thing too, is at some point you have, like, I, I don't care what background you came from, where you're at today mentally and what you're going through, at some point, you've got to choose to fight for yourself. And for me, it took a long time and I'm grateful that I didn't die before I got to this place. And it could have happened and it happens to people all the time. And I am very thankful for that. But at some point, I had to say, I have to ask for help. I have to do something differently. I'm gonna die like this. I cannot do this anymore. I, how would I want somebody to fight for me? I need to show up and do that for myself and stop allowing this, these patterns that have be become addictions to continue to rule my life. And I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to start trying to figure it out and make small changes. And that's that mental shift, finally, like believing it and really owning that and living that way is what started to move the needle for me and, and and expanding my community, letting people in on what I was going through, having them fight along with me. All of that was so important, but 
you've got to make that choice at some point because your default state, if you do nothing, your brain's wired to keep doing the same thing. So you're going to keep choosing to eat poor foods, to not go to the gym, to, you know, do what you've been doing because it's easy. And that's what will be the default if you don't actively try to intervene and do something better. And so I would encourage everybody and, you know, you may not be there right now. If you're listening to this, you may not be in the place where you're ready to do that, but like, find a time, put it on a calendar, whatever, where you're like, this is the day that I'm going to, you know, choose to finally start doing this for myself or for my, my spouse or my friend or my child, um, my parent that, you know, you can be the catalyst too. And ultimately that person has to be the one to make the choice, but you can be supportive for them too. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a mental choice that we've, we've all got to make. And with certain addictions, it's, you know, it's not a choice. And that's where you have to ask for help because you can't do it alone. So that's, um, we've got, you know, again, like we can't keep doing what we've been doing. This isn't working. Got to do something different. It was about a year ago. Um, I went home to Europe. I'm actually, after our conversation, I'm packing and leaving again to go, to go back to England. Um, but I found myself probably aside from my divorce early times, the, the deepest depression I found myself in. And again, it's, it's an unusual place. It's not somewhere I'm normally at, but I had physical, you know, physiological burnout, mental burnout, the deepest brain fog. Um, I, I did a whole video on this. I was on my way to my jujitsu class and, you know, late, basically defecated myself before I could make it to a toilet. Um, and, you know, was humiliated and you know, all that stuff. It was the guilt and the shame and everything. But it was to the point where I had literally lost control of my physiology. And then, you know, when I when I finally went on this trip, um, you know, I was jet lagged and, and you know, the circadian rhythms all shifted again. And I was I was literally seeing colors as, as gray. Like I knew they were different colors, but I felt the world was just gray to me. And so I did a video on it. It was it was interesting. But what I put in place there because again, I was like, well, this is insane, is every morning I made myself do a headspace meditation and then um, did a 10-minute yoga practice. At the time when I was with my family, I was still drinking with them. And I've always you know, drank habitually, not binge drink, not, a, not excessively, but way too often, way too many days in a row. And so when I got back, that was day one of not drinking. And you know, the goal is not being to be completely sober. It's been to retain the kind of control that I had earlier in my life where, you know, if I wanted one, you know, a couple in a weekend or whatever, that was fine. And I could also stop just as easily. And I didn't have that at all. I'd completely lost that control. But 2022 has actually been amazing. And I've had huge, huge period months of not drinking at all. And then I'm, you know, might for a bit and then walk away from it again. But that all came just to underline your point from, more often than not, we have to hit a crisis point, and I was definitely there again. And then making a decision like I'm going to do it, but I think the, the key takeaway is also don't aim for perfection. Like yeah, if I look yeah. at 2022, it was an incredible success. But if my goal had been to not have a drop of alcohol, it would have been an epic failure. But totally. when you add it all up, it was amazing, and I've trended further and further and further away from alcohol. Truly, but it all stems from that initial decision. 
I'm going to do this. And it wasn't overnight. Like it wasn't like I felt amazing day two of yoga and meditation. No. But, yeah. you know, so so I think that's a really important point is however deep you are, just pick one pillar to make one tiny change and do not set perfection as your goal. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's beautiful. I, I totally agree. That's a lot of the coaching that I do. You know, people are like, what can I do for myself? And I'm like, well, here's all the things. Don't do all of these at once. Like let what sounds good to start with, you know, let's build small and let's pick one thing that you can cons- like consistently do. If you don't do it on a certain day, don't beat yourself up about it. It's fine. But just go back the next day and try again and keep keep going and move towards that. And when you feel comfortable with that routine, maybe we can add something else. So it's a stepwise thing that it you build that discipline muscle. You know, once you get to a good place where you're comfortable maintaining discipline in various aspects of life, it's easier to add one more thing. But you got to start small. You can't overwhelm people. And perfection is none of us are perfect at anything. So just to go ahead and remove that word from your vocabulary. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, just staying on the TBI kind of theme for a moment. um, I had uh, a couple people on talking about ALS. Um, I had a firefighter on who is, you know, currently battling his ALS journey. Um, When you delve into that, have there been any um, correlations between impacts, whether it's through sports or it's through the military and some of the diseases like ALS later in life? I don't know about ALS specifically. Um, there maybe if there are, I haven't, I haven't seen that, um, for that specific study, but a lot of what we're talking about when you're mentioning ALS or even Alzheimer's and the type three diabetes, um, perspective, a lot of what we're talking about in these conditions is, an immune system that has lost its intentional function, or I guess another way to put it is an immune system that is maybe doing things that are not in keeping with healthy physiology that are more pathologic. And that could be due to inflammation caused by a a toxic exposure. It could be caused by, um, a biologic exposure. It could be caused by a physical injury. There are so many things that can contribute to an inflammatory process that all of a sudden turns your immune system on to be pro-inflammatory chronically that could lead to a number of different conditions. So I would say that maybe we, we don't know that for sure in the literature, but I would imagine that there's potential correlation for sure in, in a lot of these different conditions and brain injury or toxic exposures, or, you know, we're talking about toxic exposures that could be, I mean, I'm doing a research study right now, looking at mefloquine exposure, um, in the military, um, and neurotoxicity. And then the potential there's links with mefloquine exposure and, and the development of PTSD down the road. And there's some question as to whether, mefloquine can prime the brain to and prime the immune system to then lead to further damage following a traumatic brain injury that or some other exposure like trauma that might lead to PTSD or chronic 
the chronic phases of TBI with lingering symptoms. And I think that this, this way of thinking about the brain and the immune system should be applied to autoimmune diseases and other types of diseases that we're seeing emerge in the entire population, but especially in the first responder community and in veteran communities, because those are communities that have a lot of other exposures that likely would have led to immune system priming potentially, whether it's circadian rhythm or toxic exposures or, you know, heavy metal exposures. It's yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but I think that a lot of these things are interrelated. So I want to make sure that we do discuss the breath before we kind of transition out and we talk about um, the way back. Through your neuroscience journey, you know, when did you start collecting breath and brain through your study? And then talk to me about some of the takeaways that you've had through your career. I was always curious about, well, I think I got curious about the breath and specifically the breath and yoga when I was 16, I think that was the first 16 or 15 is when the, I first did yoga and there was a lot of breath work and I had no idea what yoga was. It was something that was offered at my gym. My mom wanted to go and I was like, sure, let's check this thing out. Um, and I actually really, I loved it. And the breath work that we were doing was um, alternate nostril breathing and um what, I can't remember what else we were exposed to then, but I just became interested in that and wanted to keep doing it. And I knew that I felt better when I would try these different breathing practices that we were exposed to in yoga. And then when I got to graduate school, there was, I had, so I was pursuing a PhD in physiology, but I really wanted to study neuroscience as well. I was kind of torn between which degree path to follow, but I found a neurophysiology lab. And so that was the perfect marriage of the two and it was respiratory neurophysiology. And so that focus back on the breath was what I wanted to really understand because I was fascinated by it and wanted to dive in a little bit deeper. And we we looked at a lot of different things as a collective lab. I think for me, one of the things I was interested in and what I studied for my graduate school uh, doctoral work was the normal breathing pattern, the normal respiratory pattern and what that looks like and how if you perturb that or disturb it in some way and alter it in a way that is um, maybe pathologic by interrupting breathing or creating a stressful environment and maybe doing some fear conditioning with animals, for example, looking at how all of that impacts the, um, I guess you could say mental health or overall well-being of the animal. So by changing the respiratory pattern or by um, using respiratory changes to elicit fear in an animal or to uh, cause stress in an animal and look at the respiratory changes. We were trying to figure out what it, what are these interconnected neural networks? What's driving these changes? Um, what areas of the brain are lighting up or in control of what we're doing here? And I guess the takeaways for me is that the respiratory system is the mo- one of the most powerful tools we have at our fingertips for promoting health or promoting disease. And I truly believe that when your respiratory system is, or I guess your pattern of breathing upon wakefulness is breath holding, shallow breathing, no deep breaths where you're, you know, if you're stressed, for example, and this is what your normal respiratory pattern looks like throughout the day, it does contribute to negative affect. It contributes to 
feeling ultimately feeling shitty. I mean, it's, it's something that, and, and feeling terrible will also influence your respiratory pattern. They go hand in hand. But the cool thing about that is that if you consciously adjust your respiratory pattern and promote certain patterns through different breathing practices, but especially those that have a prolonged exhale, you can counteract some of those negative effects or influence a more positive physiological state. One is more calm and rested and, and alert, but not in survival mode. And that's something that, I mean, you can feel that people can feel that instantly and no, it's not going to maybe get you out of an anxiety loop. If you're really in an anxiety loop, or if you're in a deep depression, maybe it's not going to get you out of a deep depression instantly, but you'll feel a little bit better instantly. And over time, it definitely can contribute to overall physical and and, and mental health improvements. And there's um, a lot of research around um, respiratory um, breathing patterns, breath practices, and heart rate variability, which is another measure of kind of how the system is overall, you know, how are you doing overall? Are you are you stressed? Are you um, ready to perform? Are you in kind of overdrive and um, fight or flight mode? So that's something else that people look at as a um, correlate with with the breathing pattern is is heart rate variability and how breathing can impact that. So um, for for me, I guess the take the biggest takeaway is use your use your breathing. Use that as a tool. That is the simplest tool that we have. And one of the most powerful that's directly hardwired to our nervous system. Yeah, no, it's huge, especially in a profession where we have a finite amount of air on our back when we're actually in a fire. So I've, I've covered this topic a lot. Actually, I've got um, Belissa Vranich and Bas Rutten coming back on together, but I've had Patrick McCowan, Brian McKenzie, Wim Hof for this very reason. I mean, not only in the performance side, I really, through Brian initially, you know, switched to the to the nose breathing and that yep. has worked so well in jujitsu and CrossFit and all these things that I do. But um, unconsciously, I think I was already doing some sort of breathing practice on the way to our more acute calls you know, that you knew was going to be you know, pretty horrific. Um, but as you said, I mean, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, you can start changing the way you breathe. The nose breathing is absolutely something that's going to take a while to get used to because it's very uncomfortable at first and in, in the exercise state. But, um, you know, that deregulation of the nervous system is so important, especially for the responders, because, you know, you literally are on a call and then you've got to go back to a dorm and try and sleep again, you know, or or you had your last call and now you got to go and be a dad and a husband again or a mother and a, and a, and a wife and a, a wife. So, you know, that it's such an important tool, but it's so little, dis- so little is rarely discussed in the fire service. Yet, apart from scuba, I can't think of any other profession where breath is so important in the fire service. I never really thought about that before, but you're absolutely right. I get those are the only two that I could think of, but it is critical. And you're right. I mean, if you have a limited amount of, of oxygen, limited amount of air that you're able to, to have with you, then, you know, that's something that you're probably thinking about quite a bit, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I always, tell people, I know a lot of people get the box breathing, um, 
protocol. And that's something that they've been given like in the military or for first responders. But I like to promote resonant breathing because I think that it's something that if you're, if you're amped up and you want to be a little calmer, like you're not going to lose your edge by doing this. This is just something that's going to calm you down a little bit and, and try and bring, if your sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive, it's just going to bring it back in balance a little bit to where your parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system is kind of given a little bit more power. So you're not just full on. Cause if you're in full fight or flight mode that, you know, that the cortisol dump and the adrenaline that's, that's pumping through you. Yes. You can, you can perform at a high level when you're just talking about physical uh, performance, but sometimes it can be a hindrance with regard to its effects on your mental state. And when you're having to make critical judgment calls, solve problems, you really want to make sure that mentally you're clear and sharp and that you're not just flooded with stress hormones. So this resonant breathing can kind of just bring a little bit more balance in, in a very short period of time, even just a couple minutes, like you said, out on a, to the drive, to the, to the call. Um, uh, and that's something that, you know, you can find your exact cadence with wearables if you want, but generally for most people, they're somewhere in the space of a four or five second inhale, uh, roughly, and then a f- six, seven second exhale in that time frame. Some you're going to be somewhere in there. So if you just breathe in for four or five and out for six or seven, again, prolonging that exhale, and doing it through your nose, it'll really help. Um, and there's no pausing, there's no breath holding, just keep that that rhythm going. And that can really um, help sort of just bring some balance back. And I do that, like if I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm anxious and I feel like I can't go back to sleep, I'll just do that. It, it, even if it's you know 20 minutes, it takes 20 minutes for me to go back to sleep, then I'll just keep doing that. So it does help. Yeah, I found the Headspace app actually was, was great as well. So I'd come back from a call, um, amped up, especially if it was a bad call, put that in and then a lot of times wake up the next morning with the earphones still in I'd already passed out so between the breath <laughs> Good, work yeah. and you know the meditation side it was a, a great tool yeah that's awesome all right well I want to make sure that we discuss what you're doing now you've led us through you know such an incredible kind of life story we, we glanced over some of the neuroscience but I want to make mm-hmm. sure that we do to touch um, the way back and then the uh, the medical side that you're working on as well Totally. Yeah. So The Way Back is um, a company that I started here in Montana officially, but I've been doing it in an in, in unofficial capacity for a few years. Um, but it's it's a coaching and educational service company. So what why I designed it and why I decided to f- officially create it and form it is because I want to create um, something that is bigger than me that can provide educational resources to the people who need it, to the the active duty service members, the veterans, the first responders who are the ones who need the information the most on how to take care of themselves in these really challenging, sometimes impossible types of environments and, and career paths where it's not um, it's not always easy to make good choices or the right choices or to know even which choices to make. So I wanted to create some information to put out there to share with people and educate even um, command. If, if, you know, a lot of the people who are in these professions come to me for help, but um, I would love to work it up the chain if I can uh, and, and get people's buy-in from the top to say, Hey, here's why you need to change how you're dealing with this. Here's how, why you need to change how you're taking care of your, your guys and gals, because if you want them to stick around and be healthy, these are the things that they need from you. 
Um, ultimately, that's my goal. I would love to be able to to help influence the future of how we take care of our, our people, our service members from all walks of, of life and professions. Um, and I want to be able to provide those types of services in a different environments. So maybe it's teaching, maybe it's coming in to, to help people one-on-one or in groups. Maybe it's providing some webinars that people can access remotely, whatever that is. And the the coaching aspect of what I do is also, you know, I do one-on-one work, but I like to do the group work as well. So I get hired out on different retreats to come out. My favorite thing is to be um, in the wilderness. That's like my, my happy space and my peaceful place. So I really like working on retreats um, or working retreats where I can go out with a group of veterans, for example, or a group of first responders out into the Montana wilderness or wherever, wherever the wilderness might be, but get people out in nature, remind them of their humanity, remind them to slow down and to move at the pace of life, uh, the pace of nature rather than the pace of, you know, other things in the external world um, that are driven by the career or family or anything like that. And and just get them to reconnect and and people open up in those types of environments and find it a little bit easier to dig deep. And so we can really do some good work out there. And that's probably my favorite thing to do. Um, but the company is really about helping others. And a, a big part of that is, is getting out into the wilderness. And um, that's why it's called the way back. It's like you know, sort of double entendre of the way back to yourself and the way back to health, but also like the way back is like the way back out there in the woods, in the wilderness, in the mountains, um, because it really does take sometimes getting out there away from your normal routine and environment to remember who you are and to let your guard down to reconnect and, and access some things that you normally keep compartmentalized and up, you know, in a box that you don't get a chance to look at very often because the conditions aren't, aren't right. So, um, so yeah, that's, um, a, a big part of what I do now and I'm passionate about it and kind of in the early stages of, of growing it officially, but there will be good stuff to come from that soon. Brilliant. And then, uh, Corona medical, what are you working on with that? Yeah. So that's my medical military medical company. We're doing, um, we're creating products for, Medical devices specifically, maybe some drugs, but really that's not what we're kind of after. If there's something good that comes our way, uh, we'll pursue it. But really, we want to create products that people can use for medical care in austere environments. And we're gearing it towards the military because that's where we write. I write grants and we get funding to develop products. And so military is our first focus. But as, as you know, all this stuff kind of trickles into civilian EMS. And so our goal is to create products that the military can use that are that meet their specifications that then can also impact civilian emergency medical services and be used for anything, whether it's a mass cal or, you know, just a, a, a regular, you know, house run or, you know, whatever it might be. We want to basically provide people with tools to make their jobs easier and um, save more lives or at least save more life limb eyesight. <laughs> um, so we're, we're working on a few different products in that space. Um, right now we're, we're developing, um, a topical product for eye trauma. And I know eye trauma is not a sexy topic for researchers out there to, to talk about, but for anyone who's impacted by whether it's chemical injuries or penetrating trauma or any kind of eye, whatever, that's significant because if you lose your sight, 
it's that's one of the worst things that people will say who have lost their sight. That's one of the worst things that could happen to them. Um, and, and that's something that we have gotten a lot of traction with, with the military. So we're developing a topical for that. We also have interests in developing similar products for skin. So it could be chem burn, thermal burns, but mass cows, you could spray people down with this stuff. Um, and it promotes wound healing and, um, prevents further damage and buys people time basically. Um, especially for the eye trauma, um, work, you know, if you're in an austere environment and you have an injury like that, where, you know, if you can't get medevaced for a few days to a hospital where you can get surgery, that's kind of what we're doing. We're addressing that gap in prolonged field care for the most part. Um, but, uh, we also are working on some things related to traumatic brain injury, um, and some really novel approaches for addressing neurotoxicity with, um, immunomodulator bacteria, uh, strains, which are, um, I can't really say a lot about it, but it's, um, it's pretty exciting work. So we're hoping to keep diving into that and hopefully we'll have some work. Um, and I'll jump back into the TBI research down the road with some, um, some new projects sort of tangentially related to that work that are more focused on traumatic brain injury. Um, and yeah, we've got some other small projects in the works. We're trying to develop, um, a public awareness campaign for veteran health currently. And, um, that would be like a national campaign that we're kind of working on in the background, um, with some really cool people and some cool partners. So I think there will be some pretty interesting and big things to come from us down, down the road. Beautiful. Well, for people that are, I'm sure fascinated, where are the best places to find either of those two or yourself online? Uh, probably right now I would say Instagram. Um, you can find me at doc Pate, uh, D O C period P A T E. Um, that would be the, probably the most likely place that I would be able to interact. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and then our websites, we're going to be revamping those in the future, both for the way back and for Karuna medical. Brilliant. So those, yeah. Well, Kate, I just want to say thank you. We've been chatting for two hours. We're going to have to do another conversation where we can actually talk about psychedelics and TBIs yeah. a little bit more in depth. But this is for this sure. is a beautiful thing. I mean, we we kind of talked about what we were going to discuss, and I, I told you, you know, we'll take a path, and the organic tangents will spit out, and and they did. And I think this was such a important, powerful story. I don't think that anorexia, bulimia, are really discussed much anymore. Um, but I think that that type of um, eating disorder, whether it's not enough or too much, is very prevalent on the too much side. But the mental health story and the trauma story from someone who is now a revered you know, neuroscientist, I think, is extremely powerful. So I want to thank you for being so courageous and vulnerable and uh, so generous with your time today. Thank you so much. I'm I'm honestly just grateful to be a part of this and honored that you wanted me to be on. So yeah, thank you. Thank you.